Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 155, Chang Gets Kidnapped. Last week, I covered a good deal on the economic life of nationalist China during the Nanjing decade. Today, I want to turn towards what the KMT wanted, or to be more accurate, what Chiang Kai-shek wanted, for people to believe in their relations with the government. Some kind of collection of principles and ideas that provided guidance on how people should live their lives. Like an ideology. Except, wait, shouldn't the KMT already have an ideology? Wasn't that what Sun Yat-sen's three principles were all about? Providing a Chinese version of a modern liberal state? Well, yes, yes it was. The thing was, though, that Chiang Kai-shek and the regime he created couldn't ever deliver on even Sun's vague, modest vision. The Nanjing government was in reality an authoritarian one with trappings of a representative government, just not the mechanisms for it. With all the rampant corruption and rule-through-force tactics coming from the center, Soon's vision had to be supplemented. Not supplanted, mind you. Soon's guidance was never officially discarded, just ignored when convenient, which was often. Chang opted to create a code for people to follow that was more in keeping with his envisioned regime of personal rule. It came to be called the New Life Movement and began in July 1933 between the 4th and 5th Zhangji encirclement campaigns. Following the humiliating defeat suffered for the Japanese in the north, along with the simultaneous calling off of the 4th campaign during the winter in the south, Chang wanted to start a process of actually getting people on board with his program. And given that this is Chang, it started with the army. He summoned 8,000 low- to mid-level officers from all across the country, including from warlord outfits, with the on-paper purpose of giving them specialized training for the upcoming 5th encirclement campaign. They assembled in the shadow of Mount Lushan, a singular mountain directly adjacent to the city of Zhejiang on the Yangtze River. And gathering these men together, Chang hoped to draw their loyalties closer to him. And this time it wasn't just an immediate, let me give you a bribe kind of deal. He wanted them to follow him because they believed in him. The training course for the officers included spiritual training, featuring speeches from Chang personally with titles such as The Essential Meaning of Spiritual Education in the Military and The Revolutionary Soldier First Respects Moral Integrity. Move over modernity, Confucianism was about to make a modest comeback. Chang stressed that the new military spirit would stress knowledge, faith, humaneness, courage, and strictness basically his own aspirational code that he himself never lived up to, much to his own personal anguish. The new national spirit should follow the four cardinal ethical principles of property, righteousness, frugality, and modesty. Finally, there were the eight virtues of loyalty, filiality, humaneness, love, faith, righteousness, peace, and equality to be mindful of. And yes, I realize that some of those overlapped. That's just what he said. In addition to officers, government officials and KMT party members were brought to Lushan to undergo the new training. He made the New Life movement public in February 1934, as the last encirclement and campaign in Jiangxi was underway. It came directly after the 19th Root Army staged their mutiny, so it might have been in response to that minor disaster. The movement was not to be confined to just the army, though. It was to be preached to and practiced by every Chinese citizen. It stressed to the people discipline in their conduct, loyalty to their elders, and respect to those in authority. To be righteous meant to be patriotic, dependable, dedicated, and honest. Frugality and modesty in one's affairs were to be the new rule, probably looking over at the public excesses of his subordinates there. 
The end goals to all this, and to where the energy of the people was to be directed, were to cultural enrichment, militarization, and industrialization. To Chang, the disappointments over the KMT stemmed from, as he put it, the Chinese people's habits of thinking and daily living had never fundamentally changed to adapt the requirements of a modern state. He wanted them to live in a more synchronized manner, more suitable for the industrialized society to come. His wife, Sung Mei Ling, was especially interested in pushing for people to change their ways when it came to hygiene. China was still undeveloped outside of the nicer parts of the bigger cities, in the, at least in the realm of public sanitation and general cleanliness, and Madame Chang stepped in as first lady to manage public cleanliness efforts. Part of the work was also in trying to curb the opium trade, which was still going strong across China. The problem with that, though, was that a lot of guys up in the Kuomintang were connected to the opium trade, so campaigns against that were always tough to get off the ground. The New Life movement was also supported by the Western missionary element that operated in the country, and especially by the Americans in China, who were always happy to get people to change and live more like them. Now, you might have picked up on something about the New Life movement when I was throwing around all the buzzwords at you, and that might be the precepts to all this were all painfully simple. Banal is a word that gets thrown around in the sources a little bit, and I agree with that assessment. It was all painfully basic self-help like clean your room and listen to authority figures. There wasn't anything in there about deeper meanings to why they were doing it besides making the nation stronger. But that simple demand did hold a good deal of resonance in a nation that was legitimately under a clear and present foreign threat. And they needed something. Anything. And if the point of the New Life movement was to ultimately militarize society like its critics said, then there was a group within the Kuomintang, or at least adjacent to it, that became the movement's paladins. I'm talking about the Blue Shirts, whom I discussed briefly back in episode 150, as well as the unholy mess of societies, both secret and open, that operated alongside them, or as we're going to discuss, may have even directly controlled them. Because what I'm going to be talking about was a clique of people centered around the Wampoa Academy officers, who then created an entire constellation of groups, most of which get lumped under the category Blue Shirts. They rose to become a mixed civilian military group that acted as a highly aggressive PR network on behalf of Chiang Kai-shek. And when I say, when I say aggressive, I do mean also strong-arming people in the streets, if need be. Except the picture is more complicated than just one group of boosters. They were associated with what was called the Renaissance Society, one of the many political societies that floated around China in those days. Every faction had their public mouthpieces working out on the street level. The CC clique had theirs, even Wang Jingwei had his own group of supporters. Except in this case, it went farther than that because the Renaissance Society was controlled by a smaller, secret group called the Society for Vigorous Practice, the SVP. This was composed of Chang's closest supporters in the NRA, and almost all of them had been attendees of the Wampoa Academy back in the pre-expedition Guangzhou days. These were guys who were kind of looking for a new purpose, since in 1931, it seemed as though the domestic big battles had been fought, and the southern military clique that had formed Chang's core supporters had been sidelined by newcomers after the KMT successes. Keep in mind, the CC clique were the ones most active in the government, and they drew from the existing Chinese establishment to fill out their ranks. That meant bureaucrats looking to stay working for whoever was in charge, and not at all dedicated supporters like the Wampoa guys. 
The Japanese invasion of Manchuria gave the old-timers a shot in the arm, and many of them banded together and presented themselves before Chiang Kai-shek as guys who would go to the mat for him. They would ensure loyalty in the army and act through front organizations like the Renaissance Society and what would become the Blue Shirts in order to push his vision among the masses. This was greatly appreciated by Chang, who probably foresaw the hard work of the conflicts to come and accepted their offer. Chang now controlled a secret society within the army and government that would utilize larger front groups to advance his personal power. While the eventual SVP members got together in October 1931, shortly after the Manchurian invasion, it was only on February 29, 1932 that they considered themselves to be formally established and up and running. But again, the SVP were a totally secret society that was never intended to even be hinted at, at it actually existing. They would be setting up front groups the for the entire way. And the first one formed was the Revolutionary Youth Comrades Association, or the RYCA. This body was set up to handle recruitment of those who would serve the SVP's ends, but not be actual members of that top-level secretive group, and like almost everyone else, uh, not even be aware that that parent group even existed. They focused their attentions on officer academies and worked to position their people in instructor roles in order to better indoctrinate future leaders to be loyal to the Generalissimo, and it grew to have a membership of about 20,000. The more important front group, though, was the Renaissance Society, as I've already mentioned, or the RS, as I'll sometimes refer to it. Unlike the military RYCA, which, if people started getting nosy, was implied to be the secret parent organization in order to throw people off the double-secret SVP scent, this was open to everyone, as long as you had somebody already in the group to recommend you. The group's offices were nationwide, and decision-making came from the central SVP organization and passed down through the ranks. Local leaders of the RYCA formed the leadership of the larger Renaissance Society chapters. The three layers of organization was confusing enough that even the segment of the public inclined to look deeper into these things just stopped at the Renaissance Society and really didn't question the group's organization beyond that first level. Honestly, you can do the same. Given this was 90 years ago and only applied to a very specific place and time, just know that Chang did have a hard core of supporters actively pushing the nationalist line, with the combined group rising to a membership of about 500,000, and that they were controlled by a cabal of Wampoa Academy men close to Chang. Okay, so what was I talking about? The blue shirts? Oh yeah, them. But how do the blue shirts play into this? Well, the first indication the Blue Shirts were even established came from a man in the SVP named Liu Zhangchun, who announced during a press conference in his capacity as definitely not a member of the SVP in January 1933 that there would be an establishment of a Blue Shirt society in order to strengthen the integrity of the Kuomintang as a whole, a group that would self-police inside the KMT and NRA, as well as influence public opinion. And when I say influence public opinion, I do include targeting threats to the regime, both real and perceived, with violence. The blue part of the name came from the KMT color scheme, of which blue was prominent. The confusing thing was, Chang himself wouldn't even acknowledge the blue shirts existed. It wasn't associated with the government at all, well, at least officially, and it operated quasi-publicly at best. It really was categorized as secret, but... You could probably guess when someone was actively working to, you know, to support the KMT that they were at least associated with the blue shirts. But there were no member cards or uniforms or anything like that. 
Its members espoused a more authoritarian line than even the Renaissance Society, although their membership overlapped and their core ideology was a hard commitment to a militarized form of Confucianism. Regional and personal loyalties would be subsumed to the central government, which meant loyalty to Chiang Kai-shek personally. Where applicable, they would also borrow from Mussolini's black shirts, using ideas like ultranationalism and a leadership cult, while attacking the liberalism of the cities and the CC clique, their main rivals in the KMT hierarchy. Which again, confusing, because Chiang wouldn't acknowledge them, and as a secret society, they lacked the pageantry of normal fascists, which is, like, half the point. The blue shirts would act far less in the open than the RS, and not make formal meetings. There were no legions of blue-shirted thugs marching down the streets in this case. But their power was felt as members cultivated support in, say, institutions like the Chinese Boy Scouts, a copy of the American organization, which they sought to turn into something more akin to the uh, Hitler Youth. In addition to the army, members were also actively recruited from among the police forces of the country, adding a level of control there as well. The Shanghai police had next to no record of the blue shirts, likely not just because members were secretive, but also because so many of the cops were themselves members of the Blue Shirts. And despite not acting in the open, the members of the Blue Shirts joined with the RS in pushing their case in the media, both in newspapers across the nation and in radio programs. One way that they and the CC clique kind of got into it was over public propaganda and ideology. The CC clique were establishment types who favored Sun Yat-sen's core ideology and continued to press for that in the public, which could not be denounced as it was still the official line Chang had to keep as well, even as he pushed his new life movement. Chang, though, kind of soured real quick on the endeavor that the SVP had launched, maybe as early as the summer of 1932. The reason is actually sort of funny. They were so devoted to his cause and thought that they were the key to restoring his fortunes to the point that they simply demanded too much of his time. Chang recorded in his diary that he despaired of dealing with his self-important followers and wished that they would be better assistants, which was to say that he wished that they would stop bothering him and stop trying to give him advice all the time. He liked the work that they did, it was just that dealing with them was a chore. He had, though, within the SVP, somebody who he could rely on to carry on their work quietly and independently. That was Dai Li. This guy's fun, and by fun, I mean he earned the nickname the Chinese Himmler, which is to say, not fun at all. He was the head of the Special Services Department, the SSD, or what would grow into be the secret police. A fun bit of useless pop culture trivia, his name, Dai Li, was actually used in the animated series Avatar The Last Airbender as the name of a secret police organization. Really not sure how appropriate that is once you get to know him, but at least that fictional group were presented as rather heinous bad guys. Dai Li himself came from modest origins, but managed to worm his way into being admitted into the Wampoa Academy in the mid-1920s. There, he was able to make himself known to Chiang Kai-shek, and although those first impressions were not recorded, he must have made the most of his time there. Because while Dai was there to study to be a cavalry officer, he might not have been exactly, uh, officer material. He was definitely informant material and helped keep tabs on the communist element in the academy while the KMT-CPC alliance was still on. Eventually, Cheng ordered the communist students purged, and Dai helped supply names. Several hundred students were arrested and then executed. During the northern expedition, Dai was sent to the area around Shanghai to work at peeling away Sun Chuan Feng's support among the lesser warlords of the area, 
though he quickly went AWOL and effectively deserted the army. There would always be an element of greasy behavior when it came to Dai Li. However, when Chang went into one of his temporary retirements, Dai showed up at his house asking if he could sign back on as a bodyguard. Okay, so I don't really know how smooth Dai Li was, but somehow, someway, he got on well with Chang, which is insane because Dai was usually a slob, while Chang was a stickler and held himself to high standards of personal conduct in his day-to-day -day life. Uh, don't take that too far. You'll remember from the bio episode last season that I'm referring to his modest and rigid lifestyle. But for some reason, he was always a little looser when Dai was around. Maybe he reminded Chang of the Generalissimo's own early days operating in the Shanghai underground. Whatever the case was, Dai's ascent was rapid, especially for someone who hadn't even graduated from the Wampoa Academy. That was a fun little detail Chang only found out about after consulting the official records in 1938. Dai hadn't graduated and hadn't even bothered to join the KMT. Both oversights were immediately corrected, and Chang declared Dai a graduate of the Wampoa's 6th Cavalry class and a member of the KMT on the spot. The Special Services Department was technically part of the SVP, although Dai made it very clear to the men serving under him that they were to consider themselves separate from even that group. They were loyal to him and Chang, and that was it. They were even funded separately, though costs increased as the group got bigger, and Chang couldn't sneak enough through the Military Affairs Committee to, to properly fund them. That meant Chang and Dai turned to the opium trade, or more specifically the morphine trade, to make up for the shortfall. So yeah, Chang was sanctioning the sale of opiates while simultaneously cracking down on them. But it was all for the cause of internal security. Despite the distance from the main group, Dai was still able to operate from the branch offices of the SVP's front organizations, with his own parallel network of officers acting through the RS and the RYCA offices, where many of them had normal leadership roles, leading them to reporting through two chains of command. Confusing? I hope so. That is what I'm going for. The entire point was to have the maximum number of people running around behind the backs of everyone. There might be a reason the communists won in the end, but I can't think of it right now. Oh, and in 1935, Dai established his own front group, the Loyal and Patriotic Association, which ran through the SSD. That group welcomed merchants and urban workers, who were among the only people the RS weren't keen on recruiting, but were also some of the most valuable sources of information for Dai's SSD. It's front organizations top to bottom here, folks. It's funny because Dai Li is listed on Wikipedia as being the leader of the blue shirts, so somebody threw up their hands at attributing who went where and just said, they're all blue shirts, which honestly might be for the best. In reality, the blue shirts were a useful cover for his activities, which ranged from intimidating the press into being more favorable to the regime, to monitoring Japanese and communist agents, and even assassinating those deemed to be too much trouble to the Kuomintang. One example was the warlord Zhang Jinyao, who I actually mentioned way back in episode 77, Mao's uh, biography episode. Back when Mao was operating out of Changsha in Hunan province, there was a cliché greedy warlord who looted the province and shut down Mao's newspaper. Well, Zhang had to leave town after the Ennui clique fell apart, but he bounced around commands afterwards, eventually setting himself up in the north under Zhang Zhulang. During the Japanese invasion of China's north in the winter of 1933, he tried to negotiate Puyi's return as a monarch in northern China on top of his new empire in Manchukuo. This was not received well, and Dai arranged for him to be gunned down in the Beijing hotel he was staying in. 
This was Dai's MO when it came to political enemies. All right, by now you've probably gotten a sense about what life was like and the trajectory of politics in the latter half of the Nanjing decade. A veneer of order, rampant factionalism, a chronic shortage of funds, but still nothing better, or rather, nothing powerful enough on hand to present an internal challenge. For the rest of this episode, I'm just going to wrap up the story of the Kuomintang in China up to the outbreak of their war with Japan. By 1936, things were actually looking to be on their way up again for Chang and the KMT. In May 1936, Hu Hanmin, the old acolyte of Sun Yat-sen and the constant thorn in Chang's side, passed away. This was handy because Chang was already preparing for another showdown with the southern warlords, and it deprived them of a potential mouthpiece. The Guangxi and Guangdong provinces had constantly defied his authority, but the effort of breaking down the buffer warlords in the provinces separating them had finally paid off. By late 1935, Chang was building airfields in the south and extending railways to carry his massing troops. He demanded the submission of the southern warlords while they were all at Hu's funeral, an apt place as Hu had shielded both provinces from the worst of Chang's reprisals from within the government. That even limited protection was now gone. The forces of Chen Jitang and Guangdong and the Guangxi clique were hardly innocent, though, as they were massing yet again for a battle to strike out against Chang. But once again, Chang could simply bring way more resources to bear against his opponents. In July 1936, he bribed the Guangdong province's air force to defect over to him in one fell swoop, and then he moved his diplomatic efforts to Chen's subordinates. They lost heart, defected, and Chen was forced to flee Guangdong province in September. The Guangxi guys didn't even bother with a show of fighting after that. They just demobilized and acknowledged Chang again as their leader. Guangdong, which had been the springboard of the Kuomintang back in 1926, was finally back in the hands of the central government. While the Guangxi clique maintained some autonomy, even they realized it was too late to dislodge Chang and retreated from their prior intractableness. That the conflict had been settled peacefully and without any battles was a huge PR coup for Chang, and a relief for a public tired of civil wars. More good news came from the northern frontiers. The Japanese had set up a puppet quasi-state under the nobility of the ethnic Mongolians in the eastern part of Inner Mongolia that they had occupied. As always, they wanted more, and convinced the Mongolians and some Chinese mercenaries to do the work for them. They gathered around 16,000 local troops with some Japanese liaisons to invade the central portion of Inner Mongolia. The Kuomintang were tipped off as to what was being planned, though, and were ready to meet them with 45,000 men of their own. Contact was made on November 14th, and it immediately became apparent the Mongolian Chinese force was in way over their heads. They hadn't been trained for modern warfare, so after only a couple days, they were beaten back. On the 17th, the NRA counterattacked and routed the small force. It was a boondoggle of an operation and should never have been attempted, as it only boosted the spirits of the Chinese. With these two victories, Chang started taking a different line than before, and suggested that the next time the Japanese advanced, that they would be met with the full force of the NRA, which the public just ate up. Finally, last piece of good news. 1936 was one of the best harvests in years. Thanks to the inflationary trend, prices of crops had increased, and suddenly farmers had a lot more to deliver to market. We're talking a 50% larger harvest here, so the farmers, for the first time in a long time, had some money to burn, and they took advantage by buying manufactured consumer goods, which in turn stimulated the urban economy. 
the nation was feeling prosperous and actually united, which was not a common feeling in those days. Of course, this would all go to seed once the Japanese invaded in July 1937, but we should treasure this happy moment in the podcast. Okay, happy moment concluded. And there was one last big event before the start of the next big rumble. Next week, we start covering the affairs of the CPC in the Long March, but for right now, be aware that the communists had astonishingly survived their trek across the fringes of China proper and made it to their new Soviet around the city of Yan'an in the country's north, close to central Inner Mongolia. With war against the Japanese closing in, this new cluster of communism needed to be crushed just as they had back in 1933-1934. Cheng, though, was realistic enough to know that even if he crushed this Shanxi Soviet, that it wouldn't be the end of the communist problem. In late 1935, he was already in contact with the USSR to try and broker some kind of deal of cooperation. Stalin had broken with Chiang back in 1927, or rather, Chiang had broken with Stalin, and relations had not been improved when Stalin got back at Chiang in Manchuria two years later. But Stalin saw the Japanese as by far the more dangerous enemy. Chiang was likely to go to war against the Japanese. There was a deal there somewhere. What Chiang was angling for was weapon shipments, and the Soviets said that was on the table if he managed to secure some peace with the CPC. The Chinese communists were already calling for a tactical united front of all factions in China against the Japanese, so there was a deal in play there too. Understandably, though, there was no trust between the KMT and CPC. Chiang's people were set to meet with Zhao Enlai, one of the most prominent CPC leaders and by far the most diplomatic, who even got on Chiang's good side over the years. But to make sure a deal went to the Kuomintang's advantage, Cheng decided to put some pressure on the CPC while negotiations took place. Zheng Zhulang, still largely homeless, was deployed with his 130,000 Manchurians to Shanxi province, where he took charge from the local warlord Yang Hucheng, a former bandit and follower of Feng Yuzhang. The idea was to again encircle and destroy the communists if no agreement materialized. Zheng, though, didn't appreciate the strategy and was angry that Chiang was ordering him to conduct another internal civil war when it was obvious that war with Japan was coming. Zheng and Yang both claimed to launch attacks without actually doing so and were just totally apathetic to the whole venture. Zheng himself heard the CPC's exhortations to a united front and thought, gee, these guys sound too reasonable. In February 1936, Zhang actually had a sit-down with communist representatives in the provincial capital of Xi'an. Talks would go on for months, but it seemed that Zhang was committed to forming a new government in the northwest to resist both the Japanese and the Kuomintang. Mao understood that the realistic option was still in making some arrangement with Nanjing, but allowed Zhang to have his ambitions for the time being, figuring that a break between the two could be played to the CPC's advantage. The decision was probably made easier in June 1936 when Stalin was alerted to Zhang's intentions, and he immediately shot the idea down to avoid provoking Nanjing. Still, Mao encouraged Zhang's ambitions privately, while also dropping open letters in the press, flattering Chiang. The impasse continued all the way to the end of the year, when Zhang reported to Chiang Kai-shek that morale had collapsed and that the Generalissimo's presence was required to sort out the tensions among the Manchurian and local Shanjian troops. Some of his inner circle warned him not to go, as Xi'an was a distant city on the periphery of China proper. 
he'd be out there with only a plane load of bodyguards and at the mercies of his hosts. Cheng, though, always sought to set a bold example and resolved to go. It was a bad move. Zhang was laying a trap, and there was no actual pending mutiny among the troops there. That was a lie. When Cheng arrived in December 4th, he demanded that the Generalissimo accept a united front and immediately attack the Japanese. Cheng rebuffed him because he wasn't going to let a subordinate tell him what to do, even though a plan to that effect was already being discussed, and the two spent the next week bickering amongst each other. Finally, on the 12th, Zhang had him detained. The warlord's bodyguard got into a firefight with Cheng's guys, and the Generalissimo with a handful of men fled the scene and hid out in a nearby cave where they were eventually found and taken prisoner. What was said about the situation was that the discussions on the United Front had already been completed and an agreement was made between the KMT and CPC in Shanghai, just that nobody had bothered to tell Zhang Zhulang and word hadn't yet gotten to Chiang Kai-shek that it was a done deal. There would be a United Front. The Red Army would limit itself to 30,000 total soldiers and place itself under the broad, uh, loose command of Chiang. When word got back of Cheng's kidnapping to the cave headquarters of the CPC, the communist leadership fell over themselves laughing. Many wanted to have Cheng shot immediately, but cooler heads prevailed. Namely, Stalin saw an opening. It had been Zheng to make the arrest. If the USSR and CPC secured Cheng's release, well, that would cement their little alliance they had going. And to sweeten the deal, Stalin would send back home the Generalissimo's son, Cheng Qingkuo, who had been held in the USSR, although also living kind of a normal life, having been married to a Russian woman and having a child and working a factory job there. He had been sent to the Soviet Union as a goodwill gesture back when the KMT and CPC were allied, and had been prevented from leaving ever since. His return would show there were no hard feelings after all. Zhao Enlai traveled to Xi'an and informed Zhang that his prisoner would have to be released, and that he really should start working and getting back into Cheng's good graces as soon as possible. Which is funny, because Zhao was the one who had been leading on poor Zhang the most in the lead-up to this mess. Zhang and Yang now deliberated over what they should do. They were kinda under the clock, because the NRA had deployed the German-trained elite units westwards, so the generals were out for blood. Wang Jingwei, the last of Cheng's rivals in the KMT, was practically salivating at the thought of Cheng being killed by the warlords. He really got ahead of himself by flying to Berlin and personally offering Adolf Hitler an anti-communist alliance should he, uh, <clears throat> be obliged to take over the KMT. The trip was worthless. Wang was a politician who would have been eaten alive in five minutes, but it did scare Stalin into pressuring everybody to wrap up the shenanigans. He did not need China joining the Axis. A procession of figures traveled ahead of the army, including T.B. Sung, Madame Chang, and even Dai Li arrived to tearfully beg his boss's forgiveness for not doing more to protect him. Zhao arrived to negotiate a settlement. Chang agreed to let Zhang and Yang off the hook and even agreed to let them into the forthcoming anti-Japanese alliance. There would be no retributions. Zhang, who was now pretty broken up over being the obvious idiot in this fiasco, agreed. Yang, though, wanted firm assurances before his release, but Chang wouldn't give them that as it would appear he made promises under duress. As Yang controlled the city of Xi'an, it was his troops in the streets. But Yang didn't have a solution to break the stalemate and finally relented. On December 25th, Cheng was released and was quickly on a plane bound for Nanjing. 
Madame Chang asked Zhao for an intermediary that they could use in the future between them, to which Zhao replied his contact in Shanghai was actually Madame Chang's younger sister, which was convenient, and also should have let them know the potential danger they were in long term. The group landed in Nanjing to a hero's welcome, the nation having been gripped by the drama for the past two weeks. This was the rare moment when Chang was personally very popular, and it didn't hurt that his release coincided with the declaration of the United Front. China was seemingly whole and ready to face the Japanese. There was, of course, a little business to take care of. Zhang, in a frankly misguided gesture of friendship, had offered to accompany the group back to Nanjing. Dai Li's people had him arrested as soon as he stepped off the plane. A quiet end to a notable career. He might have actually welcomed it. He would be under house arrest for the next 50 years, even being evacuated to Taiwan after the Civil War. It would be boring, but not uncomfortable. And it would keep him out of the battles to come. He certainly didn't have the proper track record for what he knew was coming. He simply wasn't the man to go through a knockdown fight with the Japanese, and he probably knew it deep down. The Manchurian army was redeployed to Jiangsu and Anhui provinces, their commanders replaced. Their fur caps must have been an odd sight in the warm environs along the Yangtze River. Yang's fate was sadder, as his army was quickly brought under central government control and himself arrested. He'd be confined to a cell until 1949, when Chang had him killed instead of bringing him along to Taiwan. Mao was afraid Chang would go back on his deal and relaunch the campaign against the CPC, but Zhao reassured him that the Generalissimo would probably not go back on his word, saying it was the vainglory of a self-appointed hero. Which was true. Chang kept the peace with the CPC and even started sending them funding as agreed. The overall KMT was mildly aghast at the agreement. What had the past decade of struggle meant against the CPC that they were now just joining hands? But Chang pushed through the agreement to cooperate by arguing that the war with Japan would decide everything meaning they could have a showdown after that was handled. On April 14, 1937, Stalin honored his promise and returned Chang's son with the family in tow. It wasn't the warmest reunion. There was always a chill between father and son, part of why Chang didn't press for his release after so many years, and Chang neutrally suggested to his son to write a memoir of his 13-year experience. The pattern of Chang's fortunes continued on its positive trajectory until July 7, 1937, when the Marco Polo Bridge incident spiraled out of control and into a general war. But that is a story for later this season. But before leaving China behind again, there is still one last big story to tell, the Long March. The CPC has its own history among the southern base camps leading up to this epic trek, not to mention, you know, the Herculean feat itself that was the march. This will easily take three episodes, and I cannot wait to present them to you. So, join me next week, and as always, thank you very much for listening.